following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. I thought about addressing you on a topic that would be helpful as we kind of enter into the Christmas season. I actually got to write that in the Calvary Review, so you can, you can read that sermon there. And uh, I just thought I'd kind of move on to the next thing, which is New Year's. Since we're just a few weeks away, really, from New Year's, I wanted to address you on the topic of New Year's resolutions, because I don't, I don't think this is something we think about very much, something we talk about very much. Uh, how many of us have made New Year's resolutions before? I'm thinking, like, well, I'm going to wait to find out what you have to say before I can <laughs> confirm or deny <laughs> uh, okay, slides. Here we go. Yeah, New Year's resolutions. Um, yeah, New Year's resolutions, it's a big thing. In fact, uh, here you go. Top 10 most popular New Year's resolutions regularly. This is actual statistics. So there's 10 through 6, right? Spend more time with family. Stop procrastinating. Improve a relationship. Quit smoking. Learn something. It's like the story of my life so far. Uh, number five, eat healthier. Here we go on the countdown. Number four, exercise, right? Number three, spend less, save more. Number two, get organized. It's still the story of my life. And number one, lose weight. I keep having people tell me I need to gain weight, so <laughs> I'm going to disappear if I lose any weight. Uh, but get this. What do, what do you think? I mean, New Year's resolutions are a pretty popular thing. You know, 45% of Americans actually make a New Year's resolution. How many? You tell me, what do you think is the percentage of people who succeed at their New Year's resolution? Is it, who, who says 75%? Anybody? No, no optimists in the room. Okay, Arvin. Uh, 50%. Who says 50%? Anybody? 25%. Okay, we got some votes for 25 Who says 10%? Yeah, that's kind of what I guess too. It's actually 8%. So sorry, we were all wrong. Uh, we could have expected that, right? Like New Year's resolutions have kind of become a joke. Like, hey, New Year's is coming and that means it's been almost a year since last time I didn't become a better person. Uh, and it's like, as we think about New Year's resolutions and, you know, it is such a joke to us it's in so many ways. It's just, you know, we need to think, is this something that's biblical? Is this kind of just a worldly thing that we should just kind of go along with or not go along with? I mean, like as Christians, should we make New Year's resolutions? What do we know about New Year's resolutions origins? How did this whole thing start? Well, let's consult the great reliable source, Wikipedia. Uh, New Year's resolution. Here you go. A New Year's resolution is a secular tradition. That, oh, okay. Well, there you have it. Uh, New Year's resolutions. Uh, it brings up an interesting question, right? How should we think about New Year's resolutions? It's a, I think it's a great example of how oftentimes we can kind of muster up the guts to make some big change in our lives, but we don't think much about what God says in the Bible about how people change. So how, how do I change as a Christian? Do we understand how people change? What does God say about how we should change? Well, 
That's why this morning we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This passage has been such an encouragement to me, and I just hope to pass along some of that to you. We're going to look at verses 11 and 12 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So just read it with me in your Bible as I read it from mine. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, uh, what a rich text and what a great thing that we could come and even just dive in this morning into these two verses. And Lord, uh, we confess, Father, that there are so many things in our lives that we do want to change. What a, what a comfort as we look at our own lives and see how desperately we need to change. And for each of us, there are things that we would want to change about ourselves. What a comfort that you never change. Give us wisdom, Father, not, not just for our New Year's resolutions, but for the sake of our very lives. Help us to understand how you have designed us to change, God, and then empower us to live differently. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to imagine with me, like our family does every Sunday, we get into the van to drive to church. Uh, you know, you, I want you to imagine with me how this could go. We, I look in my mirror before I pull out and uh, shift the car into drive, turn the wheel, put my foot down on the gas, and then nothing happens. So I, I try again. This time I slam my foot down on the wheel, or on the pedal. Like, come on. I'm shaking the wheel. Like, come on. I'm like looking in the mirror. There's nobody coming. Let's go. And I look over at my wife. And I'm like, Ugh. she says, think you can do this on your own? You have to start the car first. So obviously embarrassed, you could imagine I would then look down at the keys in my hand and start the car. Now we're ready to make some progress, right? Before long, though, I notice we're still not going anywhere. Doesn't appear to be anything wrong with the engine. I get out and look at it. I know the gas tank is full. And look at Claire, and I'm like, I don't get it. The engine is great. The tank is full. I can't understand why we didn't go anywhere this time. She looks at me with the patient look that she always does and says, sweetheart, now that you've started the car, you can't just sit there. You have to harness the power that's there in front of you and turn the wheel and push down on the pedal. You didn't do anything, so nothing happened. The power was there, but you didn't use it to make progress. And isn't it true that when we talk about sanctification, when we talk about our Christian growth, I'm afraid too many of us are slamming our foot down on the pedal of our Christian lives, trying to go somewhere Shaking the wheel, but forgetting that the power to change is not in ourselves. It comes from God. But then there's also those of us who have recognized this and responded by saying, okay, God's the one who makes people grow to become more like his son, right? He's the one who does it. So I'll just focus on the gospel and I'll sit back and trust God to change me. Now, this is no small issue for us in this room, is it? Because we all want to change. 
So do we really understand what the scripture teaches about how to change? Whether you're 16 or 60, this is at the very heart of why we're here. Because we love Christ and we want to become more like him. And I think as we get a better understanding from this passage of how people change, it will prepare us to make some good, healthy, Bible-saturated, gospel-driven, grace-infused, God-empowered New Year's resolutions. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11, and 12 gives us this prayer of Paul, right? You can see that because he starts out saying, we always pray for you. Okay, so this is Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. He's telling them what he prays. And as we look at this passage, you'll see that he's praying for their growth. And it's almost like we get the opportunity to kind of get this inside look at how the Apostle Paul thinks about Christian growth. And in so doing, the opportunity to get an inside look at how God thinks about Christian growth. And so here I want to just kind of walk through four biblical keys to change. And when we rightly understand how to change, I think we'll be more equipped to succeed at keeping New Year's resolutions. So four biblical keys to change. Number one, walk with Jesus. I want us to notice here, Paul's prayer is for them to grow as believers, but this prayer is planted in something, right? You'll notice this is verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1, and it begins, to this end. Well, to what end? Paul. So uh, we're going to parachute down into these verses here, right? We need to understand what's the surrounding that we've parachuted down into. Well, in the verse before, look at verse 10 in your Bible. It says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Whoa. Do you hear what Paul's talking about here? Interestingly enough, you skip just past verses 11 and 12 into chapter 2, verse 1 is the very next verse. And it says, now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These verses where Paul is praying for them to grow as Christians are planted in the context of a discussion about the return of Jesus. The thing that motivated Paul to pray for their growth as believers was the fact that he's thinking about Jesus coming back. This should tell us something, right? This should tell us that this is about a person. And his name is Jesus. It's not just about coming up with a good formula to change, right? How to be a better person or how to live in such a way that we can make ourselves better. It's more about how to live in such a way that we're looking forward to and preparing for the return of the Savior who we love. It's about our relationship with him, isn't it? Not just obeying rules, not just becoming a better person, but awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. You know, you see this all over the place in scripture too. Titus, Titus chapter 2, 12 and 14 says, listen to this. We live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, right? There's sanctification. That's growth in Christ. Why? Because, the verse continues, we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.13, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And on and on it goes. There's so many passages in Scripture that I could bring to your attention. But you see, all over the Bible, 
Christian growth is not, cannot be, a mechanical process. It is relational. That's why when I say we're going to look this morning at these verses and see how Christians grow, I, I look at these verses and I just feel this burden to make sure you understand that these things aren't a formula. This isn't like a one plus one plus one equals three. There you have it. That's how you change. It's not a mathematical equation. This is an organic relationship with Jesus Christ. It's planted in the soil of waiting for our Savior's return. If you just try to do these things without the relationship with Jesus, that's like you're trying to grow something without soil. You just got this plant and the roots are dangling and the leaves are wilting and the flower petals are falling off. You know, it's like the beast's rose, right? Like, oh, okay, it's a magic rose. I get it. Yeah, but this is the same reason here in verse 11, Paul summarizes the Christian growth process by saying, look in verse 11 there, it says that our God may make you worthy of his calling. See, the, the process here of being made worthy, that is Christian growth. But make you worthy of what? That, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Well, what's his calling? That's the calling to salvation, the calling to a relationship with him. The calling is like, it's like this word picture, right? Like all your life, you've been hearing about this God and about this Jesus guy that died on the cross for sin. And you've been hearing about this gospel. And then all of a sudden, spiritually speaking, God calls you like, hey! And all of a sudden you turn to him, you repent, you believe the gospel, you embrace Jesus Christ as your savior, and you start going towards him instead of away from him. That's why the Bible, when the Bible talks about here that our God may make you worthy of his calling, that's, that's the description of Christian growth. It's the calling to him, to a relationship with him, and then growing in that relationship. So I, I have to ask you, before I can continue in how to grow as a Christian, are you a Christian? If you're going to grow in the fruits of the Spirit, do you have the Spirit? If you're going to deepen in your love for Jesus, do you know him? Because the process being described in these verses, it's, it's important that you see it's, it only happens to those who are genuinely born again by the Spirit of God. This is a spiritual change that happens, not just something we muster up. It's not to people who want to be better, not to people who like to go to church, not to the millions of people in the, in the world and all over America who claim to be Christians but have never genuinely believed the gospel with a saving faith. They've never been called by God and born again. So have you? Like, just don't move on in these verses and think, yeah, I'll make some New Year's resolutions. I'm going to change for the better. I'm going to become a better person this year because I read some Bible verses about it. It's, it's not just about this mechanical process of four steps to change. It's about a relationship. See, Jesus didn't die and rise again to make bad people good. Jesus died and rose again to make dead people alive. And that's why the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It saves people and then it makes them more like his son. 
So when the Bible talks here about, when Paul says, we pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, it's the calling to that salvation, that relationship with Christ. It's the calling to eternity with him when he returns, just like Paul is talking about in the context around these verses. Paul describes the process of growth as being made worthy of that calling. This doesn't mean like worthy, like eventually I'll be worthy enough to get saved. It's being made worthy because I have been saved. It's, it's more like more fitting, being made more appropriate, more, your phone is ringing. No, your phone's ringing. And it's the president of the United States of America. And he's coming over for dinner tonight. And you're going to go home after church today. And you're going to make your house more worthy of the visit from the president. Maybe some of you would put tax on the chairs, but never mind that. <laughs> the idea is the president's coming over and you're going to, you got to make your house more worthy for his visit, for his arrival. It's not that you're cleaning up because you want the president to come over. You're cleaning up because he is coming over. And in the same way, we're not made worthy because so that we can be saved. We're being made worthy because we are saved. You're getting ready for Jesus' arrival. That's sanctification. That's Christian growth. That's what we're talking about this morning. That doesn't happen as we clench our fists and change our behavior with all of our might. It happens when God calls you to salvation and then you're changed from the inside out by the power of his gospel and the resurrection life of his son. It happens as you are eagerly awaiting the return of the Savior that you love. In your Christian life, are you more motivated by rule-keeping or by relationship? This is something for us to ponder because it's so easy to just keep rules. It's so easy to look good on the outside. But Jesus constantly in the Sermon on the Mount said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, the heart. You've heard it said, external behavior, but I say to you, the heart. Jesus was going after people's hearts. Jesus is going after your heart. He doesn't want your external behavior to change. He wants your heart to change, and only he can do that. So as Paul is praying for the Thessalonians to grow as believers, we're, we're getting this inside look into how Paul, how God thinks about Christian growth. And the first thing we see here is our sanctification happens in the context of a relationship with Jesus in which we're waiting for his arrival. So he said, if you want to grow or make successful New Year's resolutions, the four biblical keys to change, number one, walk with Jesus. Number two, make resolutions. Look in your Bible at verse 11, because I want you to see these aren't things coming. These are things that are coming from the word of God, not from the mind of the crazy youth pastor who normally doesn't get to preach in here. Look at verse 11. It says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good. Paul prays that God would fulfill the Thessalonians resolves for good. And the word here resolve, or the, as the NASB says, every desire for goodness, it's it's this determined desire kind of a word. It's an internal desire of the soul to accomplish some good thing like a New Year's resolution. 
It's a resolve for good. And Paul prays that God would fulfill the Thessalonians' resolves for good. Now, this assumes something. Yes, it's God who fulfills our resolves for good. But in order for Paul to pray that the Thessalonians' resolves would be fulfilled by God, they had to first make resolves so that God could fulfill them. The Thessalonians were making resolves for good in their Christian life. They were examining their lives honestly, looking for ways that they needed to grow, then planning in advance some determined attitude to change. And that kind of passionate attitude to change isn't wrong. It's not proud. It's not wrong for me to say, as for me, I will do this. How about Joshua, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Nobody sat back and said, Joshua, you arrogant jerk. You know, listen to it in Psalm 119. In fact, let me just flip over here real quick. Psalm 119, verses 57 through 60. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways... I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. See, this is a resolved attitude to change that the Thessalonians had, that Joshua had, that the psalmist has here. I I promise God, I'm going to do this. I think about my ways and I turn my feet towards you, God. Think about Daniel, for example, right? in captivity in a foreign nation, they're bringing him food and wine that would be sinful for him to eat and drink. Daniel loves God. He doesn't want to be defiled. He doesn't want to mess up his relationship with Yahweh. So what does Daniel do? He kicks back and says, I really hope I don't have to eat that stuff because that wouldn't be good. No, no, no. Daniel 1.8 says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. You see this specific resolve for good. I will not do that. We see this all over the scripture, all throughout church history. I mean, need I mention Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions? We're so familiar with them. They're so good. Number 17, resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Well, the first 21 of them he wrote when he was a teenager. So we see that the Thessalonians are resolved to change. Daniel, Joshua, the psalmist, the scriptures themselves and church history testify that if we want our lives to count, if we want to change, we must be intentional and strategic. We must make resolves for good. So let me ask the question plainly. Are you resolved? Have you made some resolutions? I mean, not just for New Year's, for your life. Are you resolved to live for Christ? Do you have a passionate spiritual desire to see God fulfill something that you have resolved to set your mind to and accomplish in your life? My dad always said, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. 
So we need to be thinking strategically about what we're called to do and to be and to make these intentional, bold proclamations over our lives, like a bright banner of declaration over our lives. I will live radically for Jesus Christ. I will do this thing. And I'm praying that God will fulfill this resolve. Otherwise, our lives will just be merely a series of knee-jerk reactions, right? No, we need to plot the course. You must plot the course for your life. You must be resolved. Nobody else is going to make resolutions for you so that your life goes well. So make resolutions. Be a Christian who is not just kicking back, waiting for life to hit you in the face with something. Be like the man who heard the babies cry from the path and ran over to see what was happening and saw a baby drowning in the river. He jumps in, rescues the baby. And as he's sputtering water and climbing out on the muddy shore, a man walks up. What's happening? He's like, this baby was in the river. And he hands the baby to this man and climbs out only to turn around and see another baby in the river. So he jumps back in and he rescues this baby and and then more babies. And before long, the guy can like, he's practically drowning himself trying to keep up with all of these babies in the river. And more and more people come to try to help. And eventually the guy says, I'm out of here. And everybody's like, dude, where are you going? You, the baby, we, you, we need your help. And he says, I'm going upstream to find out who's throwing babies in the river. And I'm going to make them stop. We need to be like that man. You can't just sit by the riverside of your life and wait for problems to come down. No, I'm suggesting from these verses that every Christian must plan strategically, think in advance about your life and be resolved. Whether you're a teenager or a husband or a wife or a parent or an elder, if God has called you to do something with your life and he has to be something, you must not do it reactively but proactively. You must look at your life strategically and be resolved for good. New Year's resolutions? How about New Day's resolutions? My life's messed up, messed up enough. I could use some new resolutions every day. Okay, God, I got some more stuff to work on today too. See, Jesus Christ is the master of the universe, the maker of the stars, the life-giving redeemer who's entrusted to you and to me the mission of redemption. And we're just going to sit back and wait for problems to hit us in the face? No, we're going to get up and go and do something great for the Lord. We're going to be resolved to live a life of holiness, to be used by him. Shall we make resolutions only once a year? Jonathan Edwards, Resolution 41, resolved to ask myself at the end of every day, every week, every month and year, wherein I could possibly in any respect have done better. Shouldn't we be a wildly resolved people? And Paul said in Romans 15, 20 and 21, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. You see, Paul was reading in his Old Testament that morning, and he this verse got to him. He's like, I see this message about the Messiah, this prophecy, that his name will be named among people where they've never heard of him. He said, 
That's, that's my mission. Timothy, you stay here in Ephesus and pastor this church. Titus, you stay here in Crete. I'm going to tell people who've never heard about Jesus. See, Paul had an ambition, a deep desire that came from his quiet time in the scriptures, right? And as we walk with Jesus, it will cause us to be a resolved people. So make New Year's resolutions. Make lifetime resolutions. But walk with Jesus, make resolutions, and number three, work with faith. Look at verse 11 again. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Every work of faith. See, Paul prays for them that God would fulfill two things, their resolves for good and their work of faith. I just want you to see how resolves and works work together here. When I say work, I mean personal effort. Something I am going to do, something you are going to do. They can't just stop with being resolved, right? It's not enough to just be resolved. The resolve must now become action, but it needs to be the right kind of action. For example, listen again in Daniel's story though. All right, we keep coming back here, but Daniel chapter one, verses eight and nine, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Does it end there? Nope. It says, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, that, was a, that was a gutsy move. But that was, Daniel resolved and then he acted. He worked in faith. So we make these resolves about how we're going to live and what we're going to do. And then as we do, it becomes a work of faith on our part. The important thing to notice here is it's not just works. It's works of faith. This is big. Our works must be works of faith. The underlying current driving our works is faith. This is where the Bible becomes crucial because faith comes by hearing the word of God. You can't have faith in something unless God has said it. And you, you can't have faith in something that God has said if you haven't heard him say it from the word. This is where the Bible becomes a critical part of our lives as we walk with Jesus, make resolutions, work with faith. We're looking to the scripture, having faith in what he says and acting accordingly. That's a work of faith. You know, we often ask, we we get confused about sanctification. We think, I mean, do I like work hard or do I just meditate on the gospel and on God's promises? Do I exert personal sweat and effort or do I just remind myself of what the Bible says? Yes. Yes, all of those things. It's reminding myself of what the Bible says is what motivates me to work hard in my Christian life. Meditating on God's promises is what drives me to live differently, to exert the personal sweat and effort. Our, our work of faith is the moment when I believe God's promises to me and I act upon them because I know that his grace will empower me to keep my resolve, but also that his grace will be there to fulfill the good that he has promised to me if I live a certain way. And so it's not just a work, it's a work of faith. And in front of you, there is a great rocky cliff and a chasm of hundreds of feet with a river at the bottom Imagine that this jungle hike is just way more than you bargained for. 
The guidebook, though, that you hold in your hand says, up ahead you'll find two bridges. Both of them cross the chasm, and sure enough, the guidebook's been right every step of the way, and there's the two bridges. The guidebook says that the bridge on the right is the old bridge. Don't take this one. They installed the new one because the old bridge is not reliable. You could plummet to your death. But as you look at them, the one on the right kind of appears to be safer. And that's the one that everybody else is going across. You look at your guidebook again and it says, oh, definitely it says the one on the left is the safe one. Do you see how it becomes a matter of where you put your faith? Do you believe what the guidebook says? You will cross the bridge that you have faith will get you to the other side safely. Though everyone else should mock you as they cross the other bridge, you will with deep faith in the guidebook cross the bridge on the left. And isn't it that way with God's word? We look at the word and it says certain things about life. And then we look around and everybody around us appears to be doing something different. And we look at this world and it's confusing, but we put our faith in what God says in his word and we live differently. That's why we walk with Jesus. That's why we make resolutions. That's why we work with faith. And finally, number four, we trust in God's power. I want you to notice the way that this is phrased here. Listen to verse 11. Look at it in your Bibles there. It says, to this end, we pray for you that our God may, and eventually he says, God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Take a look at this. I just, I want you to see this. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may fulfill every resolve for good, that's you, and every work of faith, that's you, by his power, that's him. You see that? And it's not just that way in this verse. We see Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you. And 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I think it's clearest here, the grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now here's Paul, but his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So it's like we look at these verses and we see this dynamic balance between I am working hard, I'm resolved and I'm working with faith, but I'm trusting God's power to accomplish it in me. In fact, listen again to Daniel's story. Daniel 1, 8, 9, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. How phenomenally wonderful is this? That, that God pours out his magnificent grace in our lives like we deserve that so that we can accomplish things that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to do on our own. He gives us the experience, allows us to experience the thrill of working hard to become more like his son, even as he empowers us to do it. You like waterfalls? I want you to imagine with me your Christian life as a village at the top of a waterfall. There's a hydroelectric power plant at the top as well, providing electricity for the village of your Christian life, right? You with me? 
before you were saved, it was a dry riverbed. No grace. Empty river. No power. Dark village. Until one day, for the first time, the water came down the mountain. God's grace begins to flow in your life. And as the wheels of the hydroelectric power plant start to turn for the first time, the first light comes on in the village of your Christian life. See, the the water is what generates the power, right? And it falls over and collects in this big blue lagoon at the bottom. And you stand at the top of this river and it's like God's grace flowing to you through time. You look back at the water that has already flowed through your life and you see this blue lagoon of God's grace. Look at all the ways that in the past God has been faithful to me. Look at how his grace has done so many mighty and powerful things. And as his grace flows over the waterfall, it's generating power. Power for the village of your Christian life. And you look up ahead up the river, and as far as you can see, it's just deep, wide river of grace. Grace flowing towards you as much as you can handle. We don't just stand there and say, wow, grace is cool. Wow, look at all this power at my disposal. Look at all this grace that God has shown me. Look at all that grace. I'm just going to stand here and soak it in. No, no, no. No, you, you say, that's it. I'm going to turn some lights on in this town. And you rush over to the village. You start flipping on switches left and right. And yes, it's you who's flipping the switch, but it's God's grace that's allowing the lights to come on. You work hard in your Christian life because you believe that he has given you grace to empower you to live differently. And you see his grace just continuing to come towards you in the promises in his word. So as we approach the new year, walk with Jesus, make resolutions, work with faith, trust God's power. You know, this morning, we've gotten a healthy dose of Bible-saturated view of sanctification that should cause us to look deeply into the wonders of our salvation. And then with gospel-motivated effort, run swiftly in our Christian lives with God-empowered resolutions to work hard at growing to become more like His Son. And having a deeper understanding of the Scriptures and how we're called to change sets us up to succeed not only with our New Year's resolutions, but with our very lives. Father, that's our heart. Lord, we have seen so much magnificent grace from you towards us and how undeserving, Lord, you know, you know, God, how undeserving I am of your grace. And yet, Father, you've continued to pour out grace upon grace and kindness upon kindness And you have continued by your word to guide us, Father, that we might live differently than everyone else in this world because we have faith in what you've said, Father. And I pray that you would empower us by your gospel, by the same power that raised your son from the dead, empower us to fight sin, say no to temptation, plan strategically to live faithfully for Christ. 
Oh, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. Draw us near, God. Let none of our efforts be merely self-motivated. God, I pray that they would be gospel-motivated and grace-motivated. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.